0: Welcome to the 15 past 15 podcast. It's a great pleasure to have today as our guest, Professor David Merva from Universidad Autónoma de Madrid. David, thanks for being with
1: us. Thank you.
0: So your expertise is early modern Japanese history in particular. This is the period, of course, that is popularly known as the closed country when Japan was apparently completely isolated, a hermit country, had no connection to the outside world. Um, Can you try and explain to me why this model we have of the closed country uh, that was so prominent for so many decades in historiography is wrong?
1: Well, partly because it's simply not correct. It doesn't account accurately for for the situation we see on the ground. And uh, uh, probably the most blatant expression of how wrong it is is the fact that the very term closed country, at least in its Japanese version, sakoku, uh, is in fact not a domestic product that would be uh, deployed in the 17th, 18th century to describe what's going on in Japan, um, but is actually a product of a translation, retranslation, an engagement with uh, uh, European literature, basically. It arrives in Japan, the word, the term itself, the concept that we are a closed country is a discovery that the japanese make based on western books that they read about themselves and those western books in turn are based on reports brought from japan to europe about a century earlier so this very nature of the mutual interaction between both ends of eurasia which is always there seems to give lie to any concept of a hermetically closed country that would be sort of sealed off from the outside world far from it In fact, the very description adopted in Japan for what we supposedly have been doing is taken from a Western source.
0: So that basically means that uh, although the movement of people was terribly limited in this period, actually ideas are flowing, particularly uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries, from Europe into Japan and and vice versa?
1: Even the movement of people is probably less limited than we um, commonly assume. Uh, There are several things going on from the 17th through the 18th century but what normally is uh, assumed to be referred to as the closed country policy is basically a set of ad hoc measures that are designed to deal with particular problems but throughout the period there's a lot of uh, other types of contacts coming in Uh, and of course uh, the country is never really closed to people from the rest of Asia um, so when we speak about closed country, it's a markedly European perspective of who is being closed out. Um, but the second part of the question is of course more more interesting and that is the, uh, uh, the story about regardless of relatively limited contact in terms, terms of people crossing the border, there is of course at all times a steady stream of information. Um, that, in the pre-modern period, means inevitably information by means of text, texts cross borders. And the texts come in all sorts of form and shape. Uh, there's a steady stream of Dutch books arriving on the trading ships of the Dutch East India Company, one of the few um, sort of Western outposts that still functions in Japan throughout the period in Nagasaki. But the, the other is, of course, uh, reports about the outside world, including reports about Europe that come in via, uh, let's say, Japanese or Korean sources. So that kind of um, traffic in, in uh, texts, ideas, and notions is ongoing throughout the period.
0: And may I follow up here? So first of all, what do these texts look like? You mentioned reports, but I assume they were also all other kinds of texts and genres? And second, what happens with these texts then in Japan?
1: Uh, the, the texts that, that arrive in Japan are obviously of, of every possible description. Uh, because of a kind of bias of what is supposed to be happening historically, uh, the emphasis that has been given in much scholarship uh, on what kind of texts are coming from the West has made scholars typically emphasize the kind of texts that are emblematic of the rational scientific modernity, so the texts about technology, about medicine, about astronomy. Now, actually, uh, thanks to some more recent research, we now know that even in terms of sheer volumes of of books or types of genres, uh, there's at least as much of a quantity of text about other things than sciences, medicine, astronomy. Uh, There is as much text coming in about uh, broadly historical geography uh, and history. And this is something that concerns me very much, that interests me very much, because I'm looking at the uses of these historical texts when they arrive in Japan and are paid attention to for the first time in about the last decades of the 18th century.
0: Who is paying attention?
1: Indeed. So, we may need to delve a little bit into the milieu, the environment that makes the reception of these kind of texts and the stories in them uh, available, accessible in the the first place. Um, And uh, that partly goes back to those policies that now are popularly described as the closed country policies. Uh, Namely, uh, by trying to keep very close tabs of what and who crosses the borders in terms of goods, ideas and people, the Tokoa authorities unwittingly created a professional class of experts in a contemporary Western vernacular. That did not happen in other places in East Asia. It didn't happen in uh, Canton, in Guangzhou, it didn't happen in the Philippines. In most other places, uh, this sort of pragmatic trading exchange gave rise to some kind of business-geared pigeon mode of communication. In Nagasaki, the Westerners were not supposed to talk to the Uh, locals uh, as much as possible. Uh, They were not supposed to learn Japanese in as much as possible. And the communication between the Dutch East India Company representatives and the locals was left in the hands of a professionally enshrined class of trained Japanese interpreters who acquired Dutch. Um, And what happens is that if you institute this kind of environment and uh, let it stew for a century or so which is what happened inevitably at some point you start getting people who use the very pragmatic very business geared expertise in a uh, western vernacular to pursue other interests intellectual interests uh, and it is by this medium that um, first texts in uh, from you know Dutch or Dutch retranslations of other European uh, texts uh, reach domestic audiences.
0: So let's just try and put ourselves in the shoes of one of these translators. They're somewhere in Nagasaki in the late 18th century. They get their hands on a Western book. What happens next?
1: Most of them try to cross-reference the book with other books that are around. And uh, then we need to look at how Basically book collections are accumulated for the first time on the on the archipelago. Um, that process is often less straightforward than we would believe if we follow the narrative of a um, Japan receptive to modernizing Western scientific impulse uh, because most of the books uh, arrive are bought and first catalogued not as readables but rather as collectibles um, some of the largest and uh, in the longer term most important book collections in Japan at the time uh, come about as a result of peacetime warlord collectors uh, bringing together books which they can't read but appreciate mostly for their um, illustrations for copperplate maps and prints in them.
0: So the translators are working for the lords
1: then? <laughs> that often is the case because if the lord wants to classify his new um, purchases, he needs someone who can at least read through the title and uh, list of contents of, of the book. Um, we have, for example, from the uh, coast, um, Kyushu coastline city of uh, Hirado, we have an extant full catalog of one of those, the book holding of uh, the famous daimyo Matsura Seizan, who couldn't read a word of Dutch himself. So all of the summary of the contents of the books that he purchased in Nagasaki are done for him uh, by um, uh, people who were Dutch enabled and some of these then were able in probably in some kind of reciprocal exchange to use those books for to find information that they were interested in including information about European history for example.
0: So I imagine when it comes to translation of these actual books it's a very complicated task for these Dutch translators Can you say a bit how they get information about the new language they're supposed to translate?
1: The language is indeed a a difficulty. You can imagine that it's relatively easy and straightforward to find immediate equivalences between one-word, day-to-day terms uh, that you would be dealing with. Uh, the Dutch East India Company ships sugar to Japan. It's easy to take a lump of sugar and ask what this is in Japanese and put it into one-line reference publication which would have the shape of a dictionary. But what do you do if you open the book box that has been just offloaded on the pier in uh, in, in Nagasaki and uh, uh, out comes a book or a sort of published journal from Amsterdam, which is called Het Republiek der Gelehrten, the Republic of Letters, Uh, none of the metaphorics that has gone into the shaping of the term Republic of Letters is obviously available in East Asia. Um, It's very difficult not, not only to understand in the first place what this term means, but also how to render it into anything that would make sense to Japanese contemporaries.
0: So what happens now when translators come across more abstract concepts? What references do they have to work with?
1: So the way to approach challenges of unfamiliar concepts, which are not easily translatable by single word equivalents, is usually to turn to the background of shared commonplace Uh, assumptions, shared uh, background of general education, which is shared right around East Asia, not just in Japan, uh, around what we have now to usefully call the Sinosphere, uh, and which is called so because it consists of the stuff of Chinese histories, Chinese philosophies, Chinese general precedents. This kind of material is what you turn to when you are looking for solutions to how to translate complex new metaphors, like the Republic of Letters. In the case of uh, the Republic, of course, this is a peculiar uh, conundrum, because in terms of political East Asian precedents, we don't find a headless polity. We don't find a polity without a king. Uh, How do you translate the term republic and all the conceptual baggage that comes with it into something that will make sense for your contemporaries. The solution um, is to turn to ancient Chinese histories, which may sound surprising for a uh, linguistic innovation, but actually makes perfect sense given these premises. Um, And it turns out that you can recycle a relatively marginal episode from deep uh, Chinese antiquity and use the era name which designated a kingless reign period in the eighth, 9th century before Common Era, and uh, use it now as a form of government which speaks about um, ruling in common harmony, Kyowa. And uh, this gets adopted right around East Asia to speak about um, popular governments, about republics and uh, we have it today enshrined in uh, the official name of the people's republic of china the uh, reference that everybody has by now forgotten but has come from ancient chinese histories
0: great so presumably we get into the 19th century the popular narrative goes the west encroaches on japan japan is forced to be opened once again uh, i imagine that these historical reference of china fall by the wayside and then the pasts that are used are European uh, Western pasts. Is that
1: correct? It's not actually, it's surprising how tenacious the China paradigm is in um, being put to many various uses and one of the uses is to make sense of the West in both positive and negative ways. You can use the Chinese precedents in discussing what the apparent international world order is and you can either say that what the Westerners are producing is something like the um, ideal order of the ancient three dynasties um, which is the golden age of pre-dynastic Chinese history or you can take another Chinese precedent and say that what the Western powers today are producing is a revisiting of the warring states period, one of fragmented authority and uh, constant internecine warfare or at least latent conflict and that contemporary world the world of what we call 19th century high imperialism is actually not the world of imperialism but uh, the world of warring statism.
0: Yeah that's really interesting because it sort of implies that there's a counterpoint to some of the things we think about when we talk about Chinese history in the late 19th century. In other words that Uh, much of China's engagement with Europe comes through the filter of Japan. And what you're saying is similarly much of Japan's engagement with Europe uh, is part of a wider dialogue with an intellectual grid, as it were, uh, in which China is at the heart.
1: Indeed. The the China paradigm for making sense of the world doesn't probably reach its complete expiry date before the year 1900. Uh, So all the events that we are accustomed to understanding and decoding as Japan's encounter with the West and Japan's modernization along Western lines needs to be assessed in the light of what Chinese precedents or what Chinese conceptual vocabulary and resources are brought to bear through this process, which makes it possible in the the first place. Uh, So just like we started by reassessing the by now hopefully defunct paradigm of pre-modern Japan as a closed country, we might as well reassess the paradigm of modernizing Japan as engaging merely with the West.
0: Thank you very much, David Merva.
1: Thank you.